Spirit Radio Podcasts. 70 years ago, the Declaration of Human Rights was signed in the aftermath of the horrors of the Second World War. My next guest is part of an organisation that is hoping to mark that 70th anniversary with a very particular campaign, which is trying to raise awareness of what the Declaration of Human Rights is, its importance, and also drawing attention to areas where the rights highlighted in the Declaration are being neglected or indeed ignored. The campaign is called I'm Human, right? And, and on the line to tell us a little bit more, we have Andreas Tonhauser, Director of External Relations for the Alliance Defending Freedom. Good morning, Andreas. How are you? Good morning, Wendy. Great well, to be with you. Thank well, first of all, let's just take it back to the Declaration of Human Rights. What was, it per- what was its original purpose and has it uh, remained close to its original purpose, do you think? Well, the original purpose of, um, of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights was certainly to protect those fundamental freedoms that we've learned to enjoy in the last 70 years, uh, especially in the, in the Western world. So after the catastrophe of World War II, uh, politicians from all nations came together and said, never again do we want to let atrocities like this happen. And, um, and, and so they formed this uh, Universal Declaration, which should be, um, which should apply to, to, to all religions, um, all countries, all nations in the world, and protect fundamental freedoms. And, uh, and that's why they drafted this Universal Declaration and, and adopted it in 1948. In terms of um, th- this particular campaign, I'm Human Right, why did you s- decide to do it? Do you feel there's areas of the UN, UN Declaration of Human Rights that are being neglected? Uh, yes, absolutely. So 70 years on, what we see today is that although everybody is speaking about human rights and everybody or most people think that it's a pretty good idea to protect and pr- promote human rights, we still see in many, many areas uh, where human rights are being neglected today. Our organization, we're a Christian human rights organization, uh, also a legal organization. So our lawyers um, advocate for the promotion and protection of human rights, especially like religious freedom, the sanctity of life, or family and marriage, also parental rights, of course. Um, we see that um, there are many, many, many people out there who do not enjoy those fundamental rights. And uh, especially, especially when it comes to religious minorities like Christians in the Middle East or uh, Christians also in, in India, for example, um, they do not enjoy those, those, those fundamental rights um, like being able to freely live out their faith, for example. So our poster boy um, for, for, for this campaign is, for example, six-year-old Ruben, who lives in Madhya Pradesh, and his father is a pastor there, uh, a very little tiny church and in, in really in the middle of nowhere and where, where, where he was um, ministering to the people around him. And uh, with, with a growing nationalism and anti-religious sentiments, especially against religious minorities, um, he, uh, a mob showed up at, at his church, beat him up, uh, brought him into prison, uh, pr- brought him to the police, um, and, and then they had him jailed for forcible conversions, which is of course um, completely out of, came out of the blue. And with him also, um, his wife and his six-year-old son Ruben were in prison. That just happened over the summer, and uh, those cases. We try to bring to the light. We try to um, we, we try to tell those stories of, of, of clients that we have or cl- cases that are that are um, pursued by our allies around the world, just to draw attention to the fact that even 70 years after we said never again should atrocities like this happen, and we need a human rights declaration, they're still happening. 
And it's very important that the international community and national governments are doing something about it. And do you think that they are, Andreas? I mean, when you tell a story like Rubens, I think a lot of people listening would be quite shocked that there is things like hap- things like this happening in certain parts of the world. So there's probably one issue is a lack of awareness, and then a second issue is probably a lack of political will for governments to actually do something about it. Yeah, absolutely. You're right. Um, I think we could do a lot, especially thinking about Europe, the, the European Union as an international organization, institution also that is spending millions and billions of, 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 um, of, of pounds and, and, and dollars and euros in, in foreign aid. Um, it, it would have a lot of leverage uh, with, with all countries around the world to really um, take re- uh, human rights seriously, to take religious freedom seriously, especially if we think, for example, again, of India. Um, there, you know, people would be very open to listen to this if this would be made a, a, a prime topic of concern. In terms of then what you hope to achieve with this campaign, how does it work and how can people get involved? So we're, we, what we want to do is um, really draw attention to this campaign. And um, this campaign also promotes our so-called Geneva Statement, um, which is a, a, a document that is urging all nations and the international community to uphold fundamental right to life, family, and re- religious freedom as recognized by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And we ask people of all nations to sign this statement and to give their, their support through the signature, which they can do on imhumanright.org. Um, just go on there and you can sign your support. You can read the statement there. You can also read the stories of the people um, that we're advocating for, uh, from little Ruben, the story that I told, to Swedish midwives who uh, have not been granted the right to conscientious objection, for example, and, and many other stories from around the world that show how important it is to New, to, to reaffirm the importance of, the, uh, of human rights, but also um, to reaffirm the original intent. Tell me a little bit, Andreas, just about that story you touched on about the Swedish midwives, because certainly I know when people in Ireland think of Sweden, they would certainly think of it as a country where people have freedom of conscience, you know, it would be seen as a very forward-thinking country, um, but not when it comes to particular issues, it seems. Uh, yes, uh, unfortunately so. So, of course, Sweden is... Um, prides itself also to be a champion of human rights, and, uh, and, and, and certainly there has a lot been done in this, in this regard, but uh, we're supporting the case of Eleanor Grimmark and Linda Steen, um, and especially Linda. Uh, she, she became a midwife in, in, in her 40s because she wanted to help bring life into this world. She's a Christian. Uh, she objects um, abortion or all procedures that, that are related to this, and when, when, she, when she was interviewing for a job, she already had the job. But in the last interview, she just asked um, very politely if she could uh, not, if it would be able that she would not be uh, having to 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 um, to, to assist in, in in abortions or procedures like that. And uh, she immediately lost her job. And and then she went to the court and, and inquired about this kind of discrimination. And uh, she lost she lost it in all instances. And now um, it's it, it has been filed with the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, to make sure because there is an international recognition of conscientious objection and our past in Europe has shown how important that is that medical staff has the right to say no to things they don't believe in. And, uh, and so we're very hopeful that the European Court of Human Rights is taking this case on also to, uh, to make an example of 
how important this fundamental right really is. And we see that across Europe, that medical staff um, in many different countries is, is now facing uh, a lot of, of, of pressure when it comes uh, to their conscience rights. And I think probably a lot of people, Andreas, if they really read over the UN, UN Declaration of Human Rights, especially when it comes to uh, pro-life issues, would, would, it's sometimes very hard to kind of see, wonder how the disconnect happened when it talks so much about protecting the rights and lives of children. Unfortunately, what, what we have seen in the past uh, in the past couple of years, or really decades, is that, um, of course, also certain lobby groups and um, and ideological agendas have tried to overtake certain parts of the human rights agenda and and, and push it in more into their direction. So um, there, there, it, it has been said that there is a right to abortion, which of course doesn't exist in international law. It has been uh, claimed that there should be a right to die, for example, if we think of euthanasia and many other things. Well, we have to be um, very careful and, and, and also um, be, be, be on guard to, to, to keep those um, to keep those political pushes um, from hijacking a human rights agenda that at its core still has Christian values. And um, human rights have, have become a very important instrument also for protecting religious minorities such as Christians in many countries, also protecting life at all stages. But it's something um, that we also have to fight for. Andreas, thanks so much for joining us on the programme this morning to tell us a little bit about that campaign. It's called I'm Human Right. If you want to find out more about the campaign, you can go to the website imhumanright.org. just takes a few minutes to sign up and to make sure that you let your voice be heard. You know, if you hear someone like Andreas talking about the, those issues that you feel strongly about, then you've got you to gotta use your voice and sign up at imhumanright.org. <laughs> You know, when it comes to meeting somebody nowadays, I think that it can be really, really difficult and can be really challenging. And something that's really important, of course, is shared values. So trying to meet somebody who has a Christian outlook, it can be very important, but it can also be tricky to do. Um, in today's world, especially when I think of the Tinder generation as well, just the pressure that's put on people to, to I suppose, view one another in a, in a particular way, almost like a supermarket shelf is kind of sad too. So it's great that there is people out there who are in creative ways trying to help Christians meet one another, whether it's for friendship or for more. Well, our next guest is the founder and director of an organisation that helps Christians meet other Christians, and it's called Heavenly Partners. And line to tell us a little bit more we have Catherine Gray good morning Catherine how are you good morning Wendy very well thank you well first of all just tell us a little bit about yourself Catherine and how Heavenly Partners came into existence well I am a keen Christian myself and in my early 30s I'd had lots of lovely boyfriends but I didn't really want to marry any of them because they weren't Christians and I knew that was a really important thing for my future and I was finding it very difficult to meet single Christian men and at the church weekend away, Elaine Storkey challenged the church to do something for single people because I wasn't the only one struggling in this regard. And I thought I could do something. And uh, as, as a result, the organization was set up. And over 20 years, we have been helping single Christians to meet other single Christians in their vicinity and further afield. Um, because often some people are local to each other but just don't know it or they don't know a way of contacting each other and sometimes it's easy to meet people a bit further afield and uh, really so that's what we've been doing for the last 20 years we've done it over here in the UK and in Ireland Um, we call Friends First in the United Kingdom which is an insurance company in Ireland 
Um, but so that's in, in Ireland we're called Heavenly Partners, but we're the same organization and we have lots and lots of lovely people all the way through from their 20s right up to their 80s who use us to make new friends and to um, find partners. And it's fantastic. Uh, we've had hundreds of marriages, which is really wonderful, and lots of people who go on to make new friends. Catherine, in um, terms of just, I mean, when I, when I think of the kind of dating scene, um, things I imagine have changed a lot over the past 20 years. Um, have they, in your opinion, and, and work that you've done well, to help people Well, kind of absolutely. In 1999, when I set the organisation up, obviously the internet didn't exist. Um, and since then, it's completely taken over our lives. Um, but it's been interesting. Lots of friends have said to me, why haven't you gone online? And obviously, we, are, we do have a website, but it's not a website you can, you know, f look at people. You can't wave at anybody. You can't communicate through it. And I think, basically, in dating, it's such a personal business. Most people would love to be introduced by a friend or to meet somebody through work or at church. And actually, a lot of people tell us that they don't like the, uh, the anonymity, the ability to hide on the in, in the Internet. And people still like that personal service of being able to talk to somebody and say, oh, what do you think about um, Peter? Or I've met Anne and I'm not too sure. Or we're going on our first date. What should I do? And having that support and guidance and encouragement makes a very, very big difference. Now, I'm not saying that people can't meet on the Internet. and Lots of people obviously do. But having that support structure seems to make an enormous difference. And that's why we still offer that to our clients. And we think that... Uh, really does make a difference. It's still something that people want, but I would imagine, though, for a particular generation, and I know you said you have, you're helping people from kind of 18 to 80, is when I think of that kind of younger generation, they, uh, you know, when I was growing up, if a, if a boyfriend or a boy was interested, you had to call your house, you know, ask your mum, could he speak on the phone or whatever. <laughs> um, now, every, so much is done not, uh, you know, even speaking, it's all kind of texting and WhatsApping and messages. And then, so for, for a certain generation, the idea of, uh, a face-to-face -face meeting, sadly, um, or just even the idea of traditional dating, seems kind of alien. Well, I don't know. I think actually lots of young people are coming to us and saying, I'm just absolutely tired of the internet. I'm tired of the falseness of it. Yeah. It's not working for them. Now, as I said, it does work for some people. And obviously, with a service like ours, people are still calling each other first. They're emailing each other. They're texting. But it comes a point, and we would recommend not too far down the line, when you want to meet that person in face to face you want to meet them for real and get to know them so our service allows people to do all the this stuff uh, on the phone as i say and texting but we do encourage people to meet fairly short fairly soon and i suppose with the internet you can get sucked into communicating with hundreds of people and never actually meeting someone but actually at the end of the day that's all very well but most people want to come home at the end of the day and say to somebody who's a real person have you had a good day give them a hug cook supper together go out together do shared interest together so people people do want to meet face to face. So how does it work? How do you decide uh, two people are a good match for one another, Catherine? Okay, great question. Well, we think, first of all, um, that having choice is really important. So we try to limit the criteria that people use. In, in our 20 years, we've had lots of people say to us, oh, I will not meet somebody who's a fellow vicar, or I don't want somebody who's a smoker, or they must be five foot eight, or lots of criteria like that. And what we've, what we've found is that really, really limits people. 
Um, so we try and provide people with as much choice as possible, and then we allow them to make their selections because we found that a lot of people over the years have married somebody who at first didn't seem what they thought they wanted. In fact, that's very much the case with my own story and many other stories as well. So we provide as many profiles we can to people through the post. So they tell us they want to meet someone, say, between the ages of um, 20 and 40 or 30 and 50, uh, and we send them as many people as we possibly can within that age range. And then they look through the profiles. They've got fabulous pictures because everyone has a professional photo shoot given to them as part of membership. They look through the profiles and they decide who they want to contact. And then it's just like being introduced by a friend. You'll contact them. You'll ask um, a little bit more about them. And then you'll maybe arrange to meet them. So it's a very simple process. And as, I, as I've said before, we're here to support people all the way along the process because it can be nerve-wracking. Um, but we're here to support people. I think that's really interesting, Catherine, just the point you make of, of trying to give kind of a broad suite of options because I think one of the dangers and uh, of kind of the online thing is that it almost creates, you know, this, you know, box ticking or a kind of online supermarket where we're thinking often perhaps uh, our hum human nature forces us to think of just the superficial things and, and uh, that can kind of hold us back from meeting the right person. Well, that's absolutely right, Wendy, absolutely right. And I think also there is a tendency to think that there's always someone better out there. You know, with the likes of um, the online agencies where it looks like there are tens of thousands of people who are single, and, and that's true, there are, but there's a tendency to think, oh, well, this person isn't quite perfect. He's not quite tall enough or he doesn't quite share that interest for me. I'll go on to the next person because there's, there's loads more and there's bound to be someone perfect out there. And I think we're, the, you know, the papers or the news tells us that there is the perfect one. And I think there's somebody that's absolutely right for you, but there is no perfect person, is there? We've, we're all, we've all got flaws. We've all failures and I think when we recognize that we're looking for somebody that's right for us and that may mean they've got flaws and they're not quite what we thought we wanted but we've had many marriages where people said and again my own he isn't what I thought I wanted but in fact he's Mr. Wonderful and I'm so happy and that's what we're looking for somebody wonderful somebody that is right for us and somebody that makes us happy. Talk to us a little bit, just maybe give us one or two stories. I know you've helped hundreds of people meet, but maybe just give us one or two of your favorite stories, Catherine. Okay, thank you. Well, I've got two amazing stories, and I suppose the first one is a couple who are in their, um, I've got two, a couple in their 30s and a couple in their 40s, and I'll start with a couple in their 40s. And I think I've chosen this story because... Um, both of them were very interesting people. A, couple, a man called Wills, who'd, who um, had been dating for a huge amount of time, many, many years. He'd had hundreds and hundreds of dates and hadn't found anybody. He'd been on our books for a long time. And if I'm really honest, I thought he was going to struggle to find someone. And that's because I had judged him, perhaps on the conversations we'd had and what was on his profile. But he was a perseverer. And that was the amazing thing about him. He knew he was going to find someone if he persevered. And he had kept going, which is an incredible trait. So he was on our books. And then a lovely lady called Carolyn joined. And um, she was very disappointed to be single in her 40s because she had thought that God had given her a promise that she was going to get married in her 20s and have this family. Anyway, she, that hadn't happened. She joined us, um, was really questioning God on his timing of, of everything. And then her mother died. So she was having a really, really tough time. And at that point, Will had started to contact her. Of course, the timing was terrible because she was in a bad place in her life. Um, but he persevered, and she thought, mm, this is interesting. This guy is slightly different from the rest. 
anyway, they they did manage to meet despite the fact they lived uh, quite a long way away from each other. I think it was a two and a half hour drive to get to see each other and they weren't in very good jobs so they were struggling financially. Anyway, they did get it together and they've had the most amazing marriage uh, and, and we've actually stayed in touch and it turns out that Wills is the most beautiful person as many of these men are when you, when you dig under the surface a bit. Um, he's turned out to be an absolute gem and they have the most amazing marriage. So I, I really take my hat off to them because he had to really persevere she had to see through um, his initial prof- profile, which didn't make him look like sort of Prince Charming. But they've ended up with the most glorious marriage, and they made a difficult situation, particularly because they were living far away from each other, work. And they are now both very happy, and we know that because we're still in touch, which is wonderful. So that's the story of a couple in their 40s. And another couple that I absolutely love, um, which is a bit closer to home, is a couple called Mark and Lauren. They were in their 30s. And this is an amazing story of how God uses every part of our lives, including where we come from and where we move to, to work out his purposes in our lives. And that's why I love it. So um, Lauren had come originally from Zimbabwe, but she was living in London. And um, she was also struggling to meet the right man her Christian faith being very important to her. And she joined us um, about this sort of time of year when the nights were drawing in and it was getting harder and harder to meet people. Now, Mark was born in Ireland and he had moved to London when he was 30. And he joined us about four months after Lauren. And he was really one of our most proactive men. He was writing to all the women we sent him. He was coming on all our events and he was just absolutely lovely. Anyway, they met at one of our events in London and I remember they were sitting opposite each other and I thought, oh, they're getting on rather well. And um, to my absolute delight, I think it was four months after that event, they got engaged and they are now very happily married. So it just shows you never know when you move somewhere, when you go to an event, you never know who you might meet. Well, Catherine, thanks so much for talking to us on Spirit Radio this morning. That's Catherine Gray there, the founder and director of Heavenly Partners. And if you want to find out more about them, you can get in touch on their website, heavenlypartners.ie. Well, it's probably the first cold snap that we've had this autumn. There was certainly frost on the car this morning, that morning where I thought, OK, got to get the de-icer out. And I'm sure it was similar for a lot of you across the country. And that can be especially tough for older people who are living alone because not just because it reduces the amount of time out and about, but also uh, for those who are living alone that mightn't actually have enough to heat their homes. It's great that Alone have just launched a new campaign reminding people to do something that is so simple and so necessary, but I think often overlooked, which is just simply looking out for older members of our communities and our families. The campaign is called Have a Laugh for Loneliness. And on the line to tell us more, we've grown your lock and his communications officer for Alone Growing. Good morning to you. Good morning, Wendy. Thanks so much for having us on. Well, let's start off with that. Um, as I mentioned there, just we had kind of minus temperatures over the weekend, frost this morning. Some people even talking about snow in some parts of the country. How does cold weather affect older people more than the rest of us? Yeah, so like you're saying, we're really into, I suppose, the first cold snap of the season there at the minute. Uh, in 2016, it, the, the stats show that uh, one in 10 older people couldn't keep their home adequately warm during the winter. So it's really important to kind of uh, make sure we're reaching out to our older people uh, during the, the cold weather and make sure they have everything they need. The cold weather, it really does impact on the older people we work with um, in terms of, like you said, being able to get out and about. 
uh, when there's ice, it's always going to be more dangerous for somebody who might have mobility issues. But in terms of uh, keeping their health going as well, uh, you know, some people may have arthritis or issues that are negatively impacted by the cold. So it's really important around this time of year to keep an eye and maybe uh, call up and have a chat uh, with the older people you know, whether that's your family or your neighbours or someone you know in the community, just to make sure they have everything they need and they're getting on okay uh, during cold weather. And is, is it as simple as that, Cronia? It's just kind of n- knocking in, saying hello, do you need anything, having a cup of tea. Um, it doesn't have to be too complicated. That's exactly it. I mean, there's so many older people who don't go uh, from the start of one week to the next um, seeing somebody. They, you know, if somebody, like I was saying, if somebody has mobility issues or say, for example, after somebody has an operation or something happens, it can happen very suddenly that someone who used to be very active and out and about might be able to get out in the same way they did. And a phone call or a knock on the door can really make all the difference in the world uh, to somebody who may possibly also, but maybe for a length of time, uh, mightn't have been able to get out and about to see somebody, especially now when it gets darker in the evenings. And the, the people are lonely all year round. It's not just a seasonal thing. But now coming into the darker and the colder months, it can hit people harder. So tell us a little bit about your Have a Laugh for Loneliness campaign. Yeah, so we were delighted yesterday to launch our Have a Laugh for Loneliness campaign with uh, Brendan O'Carroll and Jenny Givney. Uh, we had a lovely morning yesterday out in our uh, alone housing in Willie Birmingham Place uh, with Brendan and with Jenny and with some of the older people we work with uh, to launch the campaign and just to have a chat and a cup of tea and a laugh ourselves. So this campaign is encouraging members of the public to host social events and to have a laugh, really, to raise funds for alone services, but also uh, to combat loneliness in their own community. We're hoping that people maybe take this on and uh, host a social event locally or a comedy night or something like that, that that might get people out of the house and out to, you know, to chat with their neighbours and to combat loneliness in that way while at the same time helping us to support uh, the older people we work with. So it's, we were delighted to have Brendan and Jenny yesterday and uh, they one thing they picked up on is that uh, one in ten older people experience chronic loneliness. Um, it's, a, it's a really it's a really big issue and uh, Brendan said everyone uh, needs a winnie or <laughs> which uh, to reference uh, Mrs. Brian's voice, everyone needs a, a best friend or no matter what age they are. So it, it was a great day yesterday, but we're hoping that this carries on now for the next couple of months. I suppose as well, a lot of the time is that it, it, it's our responsibility to just kind of know our elderly neighbours because we might kind of wrongly assume that, you know, somebody has uh, children or something that knock in on them regularly, but perhaps their children are living in other parts of the country or indeed other parts of the world. And there are two things that can change very suddenly as well when, when children or family members emigrate or indeed when someone becomes widowed, you know, all of a sudden they find themselves yeah. living alone. So, um, But I suppose what's your advice, Coronia, for someone who's thinking... 
uh, this is really important to me but let's say they have an elderly labour living on their road or next door to them or whatever but they haven't knocked in on them before so they're just kind of nervous about well how do you kind of what's the what, what's the, 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 w- the way to do it that's kind of uh, friendly but you don't want to seem to be kind of pushy or anything like that I think it's the same as if you were approaching someone of any age group. And I think that, that might, that's something people have a kind of an association, I suppose, with, with older people that they have to do things a bit differently. But the fact is they don't. Like you can just, if you see somebody, if they're uh, out for a walk, just go up and say hello like you would with, with any of your other neighbours. Uh, it really is kind of as simple as kind of reaching out and have a chat. I mean, you don't have to say uh, to somebody, oh, you know, when you're talking to them first, oh, are you lonely? Is everything okay? Just approach it as a, as a normal kind of relationship and a normal friendship um, because there is plenty of older people that uh, that we know that might that aren't, aren't lonely at all, that might be very active, that might be out and about in their community. Um, and there's plenty of older people who, like you say, Maybe their children are far away or maybe recently widowed or something like that. People who uh, have been active and have been in the community all their lives and out and about and talking to people. And in the same way as you'd approach a neighbour out of any age group, just uh, reach out and say hello and uh, start from there. It really is as simple as uh, sticking your hand out and saying hello. In terms of then, you actually have an actual befriending service that people can get involved with. How does that work, Ronya? We do indeed. So uh, we match up uh, our volunteers with older people uh, who want to use befriending service. So the befriending uh, takes place, it's usually, it's usually once a week. A volunteer will call out to an older person for an hour, uh, although we find a lot that that might go for longer an hour and a half or two or they might call out more than that just to call in and have a chat and a crack and uh, generally or in a lot of cases it ends up forming like a really lasting friendship um, where you know we, we were talking to a lady yesterday Sally who came out with us for the lunch and she looks at her volunteer Jenny as uh, you know, member of the family, like her own daughter nearly. Um, because if, if you have someone visiting you once a week, you're just chatting and having a crack. So what we do is uh, when people apply to be volunteers, uh, we'll do our usual, we'll, we'll train them up, we'll get garden vetting, uh, we'll do uh, all of our references and checks. And then we'll match them with an older person who possibly lives near them or possibly uh, we think they might have something in common. Uh, we we found great matches over the years where uh, we link people with similar interests that you might never imagine that you'd be able to get a, a volunteer uh, and, and an older person in the same room with the same interests. But it does happen, and it's it's really lovely to see uh, the relationships kind of blossom. Yeah, it's a fantastic service, Gronya. Thanks so much for joining us on the programme today and for telling us about the Have a Laugh for Loneliness campaign. That's Gronya Lachlan, the communications officer with The Loan. If you want to find out more about their work and how you can get involved with Have a Laugh for Loneliness or indeed volunteer for Alone, you can go to their website, which is alone.ie. <laughs>
to say I've absolutely loved driving on particular roads where they're just tree-lined with all the changing colours that autumn brings. Always puts a smile on my face. It's a beautiful time of year to be out in the garden, but it is getting colder. Uh, so here with ideas for what we should be doing at this time of the year before it gets too cold at all to venture out. We have Anne-Marie Barring from the Dawkey Garden School. Anne-Marie, good morning to you. Morning, Wendy. Well, how's your garden doing at the moment? Well, I have to admit, I was away for the weekend. I was out in Inishmore in the Aran Islands and then on, driving up from Carrick and Shannon. Well, you know, it's on the way from Galway, of course, Carrick and Shannon, but it's not, of course. And uh, like yourself, the, co- the colours in the countryside is, is just amazing. Mm. All the cornus alba, which is now the red stems and then the leaves themselves. And then, you know, it's the it's sudden sudden snap of cold nights. Suddenly everything turns all of a sudden. What effect and, does that have when there's a very quick... Well, because, I mean, when I'm thinking of... Uh, a week ago there was one day where it was 17 degrees and then yeah. it was minus two over the weekend well that's very confusing to the poor old plants but the plants really at the end of the day it's the light levels that really trigger a lot of changes in them in the spring it's the rising light level increases encourages growth and better growth um, in the autumn it's the opposite obviously because like, the evenings are getting shorter now with the hour change but they, plants don't know about the hour, hour change we didn't really tell them yet have you told your plants about no, the hour, they hour didn't th- or they oh. wouldn't listen anyway oh it's yeah. so dreadful the way they won't listen sometimes they're so bold but anyway no it's about light levels and when the light levels decrease um the green which is um chlorophyll in the leaves that slows down and then eventually stops and then the other um pigments that are in the in the leaves suddenly come to the fore the reds and the yellows and the oranges and they suddenly pop through so and they mop up any leftover chlorophyll and and give the last boost of food to the plants but i'm talking about deciduous plants obviously plants that lose their leaves in the autumn evergreens obviously don't they they actually lose their leaves gently over throughout the year but we don't really notice it as much as that and then that they the the trees or the shrubs they're going to sleep they're becoming dormant and that's the term but it is a beautiful time of year and especially when it's crisp and cold it's really lovely and uh, and it's, it's lovely as you say just enjoy the change in colors one of the things mm. that people might notice but i know something you would notice is there's actually lots of nuts at this time of the year oh halloween halloween is coming isn't that tomorrow wednesday yes it is trick-or-treating and it's and traditionally it was always nuts nuts and nuts and apples and that's their that's the autumn food of course and of course we think of things like hazelnuts um and hazelnuts um grow very well in this country and other nuts do as well walnuts uh, can grow very well they um take a long time to the trees take a long time to mature but nowadays you can actually buy trees that are grafted onto mature parent that's the best way of putting it, parents. And they will produce nuts within, say, six or seven years wow. of growing, which is, which is incredible. Um, so whereas before you'd be waiting maybe 20, 25 years for a mature um, walnut to appear. Now, one of the things that we eat a lot at uh, Halloween, of course, are peanuts, monkey nuts. You know, the peanuts, groundnuts, monkey nuts, they're all the same thing. And um, they're nuts, yeah. But, are, you know... I, 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 you know, you hear about them and then you say, well, where did they come from? And they come from warmer climates than our own. And in fact, they were, I think it was in, in I think they were three and a half thousand years ago, they were growing them in Peru. And so much so they were using them as a currency. So hence the term, you know, I'm working for peanuts, which is an interesting expression. But the thing about peanuts is that they're actually not nuts at all. They're members of the legume family, which is the pea family, hence I suppose, peanuts. So they produce a lovely little yellow flower and when the petals fall off the flower, the flower becomes a bit heavier as the seed is sort of growing and it actually droops down and buries itself in the soil. 
which is interesting. I suppose in Ireland, like... Um, have you any, grown any nut trees over the years? No, Andre? but I, I actually, doing my little thinking about peanuts, etc., I'm going to try and experiment a bit. But I think our summers, are, we don't get enough um, heat, really, for them. But at the same time, if you're growing, you can probably try growing them in a, in a, in a polytunnel. What about I, some other type of nut trees that would be more uh, amenable to the Irish climate? Um, well, I suppose, uh, well, we, we can't really, almonds aren't great in this country. We don't get enough sun either. Of course, you go to Spain, you'll see all the almond trees. But I think hazelnuts and walnuts and cob nuts and that sort of, those sort of nuts are really good. And of course, the other thing too about nuts and, say, red squirrels, for example, were, you know, famous red squirrels going and saving the nuts and then hiding them and one of the great things about them hiding their little their little stashes of, 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 of nuts is that quite often they forget so but who finds them then well they actually then they're actually what they're doing is planting them so we have more fantastic yeah. okay so I came back I'm married to a very sad looking window boxes after being away for the bank holiday weekend it was raining certainly where I was maybe it didn't rain maybe it didn't rain at my home and I don't know did the frost have an impact can I revive them well, unless they're totally dead, you can't. You, you can probably. I mean, if it's only for the weekend, you haven't left them for very long. The other thing too is that um, sometimes it rains, and in my own garden, you'll notice that there's, you know, it'll rain in certain areas, and it rains all over. But because of shelter, the rain doesn't penetrate, and especially with uh, containers. And obviously, this time of the year, we're kind of slowing down on watering and looking after containers, unless they're you're using perennial plants, you have little shrubs in them and that sort of thing. Well, then you have to keep an eye on the watering because. Containers are small, small reservoirs. So, and also if the wind is there, the wind is extremely dry. Again, how do we dry our clothes? It's the wind, yeah, not the sun. So wind has a huge effect on drying out our plants. And that's another um, reason why um, deciduous trees are, you know, lose their leaves is that they don't, then there isn't as much pressure. So the, the tree is definitely able to go to sleep. But I mean, you're, 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 you know, this time of the year, we're quite probably planting up our containers with more interesting weather, with, you know, um, uh, winter things like the ornamental cabbages are amazing they're fabulous and especially if they go to seed as they call them sprout you know they can be quite exotic and I remember one year I had a couple of them and it was around New Year's Eve and I was going to a friend's house f- for a party. party so I was rooting around to see what, what sort of arrangement I could put together and I had these sprouting um, ornamental cabbages at my doorstep so I I cut them and put them into the arrangement and my God, they looked amazing. So, you know, um, again, unless, you know, unless you have what they call permanent wilt, which means death, you probably can revive them. And if they don't revive, I'm sorry, just add them to your compost. And that's another thing too, this time of the year, our leaves, our leaves, our leaves. We're starting to collect them off our lawns rake them up because if you leave them all over the place they, 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 the grass will die you can leave, leave them on your beds if you want to because again it's acting as a mulch and this is a very good time of year to mulch your beds if you can at all because the war- soil is still warm and you, you know it's, in other words you're keeping in the heat and you're adding your blanket which for next spring next summer if we have a dry spout a dry period again as we did this year you'll be really happy you added in that thick layer of of um, compost manure or mulch, mulch, mulch. In, in this, is this the time of year to be planting bulbs for springtime? Oh yeah, it is. Again, so what you plant? it's still not a, too late to plant daffodils, but you usually start to st- it, which are nice side. But for Christmas, which is an interesting, there's one called paper white, which you can grow indoors, and it actually from the date of planting. 
which would be in this case around the 13th, I think, maybe six weeks before, six weeks exactly before Christmas. If you plant them six weeks before Christmas, you'll have them flowering on Christmas Day. And the scent from them is magical, absolutely gorgeous. And of course, they're white and they, they fit in very well with your Christmas decorating. And of course, when they're finished, when there's finished flowering, etc., let them die down naturally, as you would with all daffodils, and then put them into your, into your garden, plant them into your garden. So you'll have them in your garden next year. So you're never wasting. You're not wasting the bulbs. I like that. It's, there's something very satisfying when mm. you plant bulbs and, and then when they and finally tulips. pop up. Now on, from now on, start planting your tulips. And when will they'll come in in spring then as well? Spring, yeah. Okay. Uh, what about any sort of vegetables or foods that we can be growing at this time yeah, of year? Yeah, this time of the year, garlic, definitely. Uh, broad beans. Um, winter cabbages, if you can get them. Uh, let's see what else. Um, onion sets. You can red or, red or, or yellow onion sets, I think. Um, what else can you do? can't really remember. At this time of year, <laughs> should we be feeding our plants more if the weather's going to be a bit more harsh? No, not really. Um, because a lot of things aren't really growing anymore, it's kind of wasted if you feed them. But what you should do, what you should really be doing anyway is is protecting your soil. And it's uh, covering your soil with a mulch, as I mentioned there a minute ago, um, adding to it and um, covering it. You're using things like uh, things that they call it a green manure, if you know, open, uh, an, open, uh, an exposed space. Of course, leaves as well act as great protection to the soil and they encourage warm activity which is very important and a healthy soil there's no doubt about it build 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 your soil all the time you'll have healthy plants and hopefully a good sponge for reten- water retention during dry periods fantastic lots of jobs to be doing Anne Mary thanks so much for joining us for on sure. the programme this morning I've been chatting to Anne Mary Brang the founder of the Dorky Garden School can I just mention one thing yes as I'm passionate about willow and um, growing etc etc one of the other things I love are baskets and I'm very fortunate again to have Wendy and uh, Ronan Russell Wendy, Russell from Newgrange Willow are coming down to me again on the 24th Saturday the 24th of November which is the end of November for a basket weaving day and we'll learn lots about detail about willow and how to use it and it'll be a great day so if anybody's Lovely interested stuff. I'm very cool if you can learn to yeah. basket weave with willow they'd be a few Christmas presents sorted yes, out with that new skill good idea great stuff if you want to find out more about Anne-Marie and indeed some of the courses there that she mentioned go to her website Dorky Garden School thanks for listening to our Spirit Radio podcast don't miss out subscribe today find out how at spiritradio.ie